Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we're back with another episode. Of course, we had a great episode last week talking about some um, human- humanitarian missions to Ukraine, and I hope that you all took an opportunity to listen to that one. If you didn't, I urge you to go back. It's really right on point with everything going on right now. And we're probably going to have some follow-up episodes in the future, so make sure you catch that. And, of course, that was all in no small part thanks to our co-host, Sam Bradley. And Sam, um, have you heard anything from Kasia since she uh, got over there? I did. And, you know, this podcast is, is as much as become a sponsor because having the ability to put those updates out, uh, she's now in Poland with the Polish team, and I guess they've been running multiple operations, so she hasn't had time to, to say boo. Um, so they're busier than one-armed paper hangers there, and, and you know, the, the refugees keep coming, even though they're getting pretty saturated. Um, I'm not sure what other countries are doing, but, you know, they're doing their best, and, and as they put out requests for materials, we're trying to provide them. We have an ICS system of about 25 people now, um, we just keep adding to it. And one thing I found out that I'll put out to our people first, and I will be putting it out on the, the page, but we found out today that the uh, group that we're associated with, um, GRM, is actually looking for personnel who would want to deploy for two weeks. I'm not entirely sure where that would be. We're trying to get more information on it, but when I get it, I'll put it up in the Facebook group for those. And I imagine any of our international people would be considered there, too. So anyway, it's crazy busy, but we're, we're doing a lot of good stuff. Um, we've had so many people jump in and, and get helpful that one of the EMS agencies in St. Louis um, went out and tagged her 46 fire departments and came up with a lot of stuff we can use. So, you know, it's all good. But Miss Becky's here, and today was one of those days that went from rain to snow to slush to rain and back to snow again. I never know what the heck is going on. <laughs> it's called spring. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I wouldn't call it spring yet. Wow. Yeah, I got the snow. It's it's a really active pattern um, setting up across the U.S., which is pretty typical for this time of year. And what that generally means is you got snow, you know, usually in the central northern plains. So we'll have there's actually blizzard warnings out in Kansas right now, um, but snow from Kansas up through the Great Lakes and then south of that. Uh, in the the mid and s- southeast, um, we're expecting severe weather, and basically for the next seven eight days, there is a chance for severe weather. Um, generally in the south and southeast, as we tend to see this time of year, um, potential for Monday. I've seen some some chatter and some talk from some reputable me- meteorologists with the Storm Prediction Center and AccuWeather um, concerned that that Monday could be a potentially um, prolific day. So that's just something to keep an eye on. If you are, I don't know, basically where Dr. Joe is. <laughs> yeah. Doctor, that sounds like Dr. Joe's area right there. Yeah. I mean, anywhere from like Eastern Texas, Louisiana, Missouri, um, Kentucky, Tennessee, Mississippi, all that, that area, Alabama, that's just generally the area where tries severe weather targets this time of year. So time to make sure you have multiple ways to receive warnings and your go bag is 
stocked. Your safe place, your shelter is stocked. Yeah, we don't emphasize that enough anymore, but we should be. Absolutely. You never know what's coming, especially these days. Uh, Dr. Joe, it's good to hear from you. We kind of bumped you last week to get uh, Kasha on before she went to Poland. Did you listen to the episode? Did you get a chance? I only heard a part of it. It's been a pretty hectic uh, last couple yeah. of weeks for me. Uh, so I, I, I heard a bit of it, but I did not get a chance to finish it. Yeah, I was kind of bummed that you weren't there, but you can still listen to it. But on, the, on an, another topic, I'm, I'm hearing things about a potential, you know, I, I listen to a lot of public radio, and of course the mask debate keeps going on. And I guess the current issue with the masks is, is that immunocompromised people have to wear them and they're getting chastised for it. And I certainly don't understand that on any level. But I also hear that there might potentially be another thing. I can't remember the name of it, but uh, what do you know well, about that's that, probably, uh, Yeah, that one's BA2, uh, yet another variant of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, currently, um, wreaking a bit of havoc in the Pacific and Asia uh, side of the world with lots of uh, aggressive new cases in uh, China, Taiwan, and uh, others. Um, Europe is beginning to see some of that. And um, although in the U.S. things have been nicely <laughs> quiet for the last few weeks and, and cases almost everywhere have been falling. Um, despite the lower number of cases almost everywhere, we're seeing a, a fairly, beginning to see a fairly rapid transition to the percentage of new cases that are BA2. So, you know, although the overall numbers may be down, the, the percentage is, is shifting to this new variant. So, there's some concern as to how big an impact that's going to have in the U.S. Um, uh, the hope is that enough folks have either had the disease or are vaccinated that uh, it's unlikely to, to make, you know, too big a deal. But I'm not sure we're quite at a point where we can say that just yet. So uh, I think it's uh, I think it wise to not relax too much just yet, be preparing for potentially another wave, and uh, fingers crossed that it uh, it just sort of sputters out and uh, doesn't affect us too severely. And of course, that's just what they need in Europe with everything else going on right now. Oh, boy. Yeah, question about it. Obviously, the, uh, the movement of refugees and others from uh, Ukraine is likely to aggravate all of that uh, as we're mixing populations uh, from areas that are uh, much higher transmission rates to areas that are lower. That's just going to increase the uh, potential for spread, et cetera. Uh, have to get them some of those air purifiers. They're awesome. Well, also in the news, um, they just had, I think it was yesterday, a multi-vehicle crash uh, secondary to fog. There were six deaths in it. Um, of course, that's the one you said you got some of the, the patients from that. How do you 
how do you triage one of those things? <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm trying to imagine, I'm trying to imagine, you know, maybe a, a couple ambulances, and this has happened, you know, a couple ambulances happen to be driving around and go, oh, look. There's 50 cars in a pile. Well, and, and guess what? Because of the <laughs> fog, they probably didn't see 50 cars in a pile. I mean, well, every, every time they walked 10 feet, they found another patient. Yeah. Yeah. As a and, matter of fact, a couple of those uh, first responders went to the hospital with, with injuries due to, you know, being impacted by other cars driving into the pile. Well, yeah. I mean, you have to be really careful about that because... If they don't see it, it, it you know, it's going to keep going for a while. It's like a domino effect. But, you know, when things settle down, I can I can imagine responders going in from both sides and meeting in the middle somewhere. So I couldn't find anything that indicated how many patients were involved, but they're up to six deaths so far. So, yeah, I mean, there, it sounds like there are 50-plus vehicles involved. Yeah. Uh, Many of them, eighteen wheelers and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, you no, know, those things um, obviously are very heavy. Lots of mass, lots of inertia, do tremendous damage to smaller vehicles in those situations. And um, you know, particularly if uh, if things are are so obscured with fog that you can't see fifty feet in front of you and impact them whatever's in front of you at high speed. So some of the pictures are pretty horrific uh, of the amount of damage. And uh, I certainly see lots of 18-wheelers there with uh, smaller vehicles sandwiched in between them. Good grief. Well, Becky, I also saw something on a 70-vehicle pileup uh, in Pennsylvania due to a flash freeze. What do you know about that? When did this happen? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I just just noticed it. It was recent. Well, it would have had to have been. I didn't hear about this, to be honest. Um, but my guess, if it's, if it occurred, it would have been probably Saturday night. We had a pretty widespread snow event of about maybe four or five inches across much of the region, and then rapidly plummeting temperatures. Um, okay. It could have also happened the next night as stuff started to melt a little bit on Sunday and then temperatures drop below freezing again Sunday night. And maybe it was like a Monday morning commute thing. Um, that's certainly possible. I don't remember hearing 170 car at Cumberland County Saturday. I... Yeah, it was Saturday afternoon. Sorry, I'm finding it? it now. 73 people involved. Here it oh. is. Yeah, 70 vehicles and 70. Yeah, 73 vehicles. So, yeah. oh, so it was Saturday. It might have been associated with the snow then, because there was. Yeah, it looks pretty snowy in the through. picture. Yeah, but the flash that... freeze aspect is definitely something that can be concerning if you have any melting after a snowstorm and then it refreezes. That's always fun. That was a problem down yeah. our way. No major like pileups like that, but it, the roads were pretty treacherous here over the weekend and evenings. So yeah, the temperature dropped just enough to freeze everything back up again. Well, that's like it was here. It rained last night. And then when I woke up this morning, there was snow and then it started to warm up a bit, but I wasn't sure what I was seeing on the ground was ice or slush. Uh, it's scary. You just don't know what you're getting into out there. Anyway, that's, uh, I guess that's common for this time of year. And then there's the Japan earthquake. Um, 
You know, Japan does pretty well. I mean, you know, they're so used to this kind of thing. But this was a 7.4, so that's that's a pretty good shakeup. I can't remember exactly how many people they've counted, but, it, it, you know, it's in the lower numbers. Oh, four deaths, four deaths, five deaths, and about 100 injuries. So that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Yeah. Joe? But, but Sam? I, yeah. I think this one was was some distance off the coast, so oh, you know, okay. tsunami would have been would have been a much more likely source of uh, injury and death than than perhaps direct effect from that earthquake. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes good sense. So they probably have a pretty good USAR setup, right? I mean, you know, Japan get, gets these all the time. They they do yeah I, I don't know I don't have any personal um, interaction or knowledge of them but their system is pretty thorough uh, and, and you are correct obviously they deal with earthquakes on a pretty regular basis there uh, and this one was actually again near the Fukushima nuclear plant that was affected so severely several years ago by a massive earthquake. Man, it just, you know, when you think it's over, it's never over, especially in Japan. But they're doing okay, I guess. Um, so, Joe, you've been up to some things. You were just doing some military training. Can you tell us about that? Actually, this was not military training. This, oh, this was, okay. yeah, this was FEMA-based training. And so... Uh -huh. uh, now that COVID has sort of settled down a little bit, fingers crossed, knock on wood, et cetera, um, we were able to hold a medical specialist class, um, uh, which is the first one we've been able to do in, gosh, uh, at least a year and a half, probably two years, um, in which we are able to bring together the physicians and uh, medics that that are part of the urban search and rescue team. A week with them, um, training them specifically for the environment that we face, urban search and rescue. So it's um, it, it's an awesome course, very intense, very. Uh, physical, uh, very austere. We were lucky enough to be at a um, uh, training site in California that um, many of the fire departments use, so lots of great props and uh, amazing uh, uh, equipment and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, there's some classroom stuff with some uh, sort of didactic type education and then lots of hands-on activities um, that, that sort of escalate over the course of several days, kind of wrapping up with a nighttime exercise in a, uh, a rubble pile that's, you know, a collapsed structure that has live victims in it that they have to assess and interventions and extricate from that environment and has lots of... Um, uh, injects of all kinds of fun stuff from my dog to buy a car to you know, the out of control family member who wants to know where the baby's at and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it, it, it's a really uh, 
intense course, and I think in many cases it 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 uh, it's a bit of a new experience for most of the medics that go through it, just because it's not and, and physicians that go through it as well, just because it's not any kind of it's not medicine environment that they've really practiced before. Even if you're a streetwise medic, this is pretty hard stuff. And and most everybody comes out of that going, wow, I've never done anything like that before in my entire So this is more medical people learning the USAR environment versus the other way around, right? Yeah, that, that's correct. So, you know, it, it's as much kind of getting them up to speed on how the system works and what to expect on one of these deployments, uh, as well as the very unique medical conditions that we often see and how to take care of those medical conditions in a very austere environment or or for a prolonged period of time. So, you know, it's not uncommon for urban search and rescue to have to spend many hours getting access and extricating a patient from under a collapsed structure just because there's tunneling to be done and debris to be moved and all of that stuff. And so the medical team may have to take care of that patient for 12 hours while we get them freed up enough to be able to move them out of that situation. And then if the if the infrastructure surrounding the disaster is pretty damaged and, and, and the nearest trauma center is, you know, 300 miles away, then, you know, we have to take care of them until we can figure out how to get them out of that environment. And obviously in those situations, transportation is pretty limited and, uh, it, it, it often takes a very long time for things to get done. So it's just a bit of a difference in approach and a difference in expectations and sort of getting particularly physicians uh, who, who are much more used to working in an emergency department. And if they need something, they can get it, you know, fairly quickly and, and then realizing Hey, out here in the field, there's not a CT scanner. There's not an X-ray. There's not anything except your hands and your eyes and your brain. So figure it out and make it work. And oh, by the way, you're gonna have to take care of this for the next 18 hours until we can get you out. Oh God, uh, Jamie. You know, Joe, I was thinking about the timing of when you did this training, and I was trying to remember if it was before or after the beginning of hostilities in Ukraine, because I don't know about you, but I've been watching the footage of the first responders that has come across the news, um, you know, dealing with people in bombed out buildings, um, unexploded ordnance nearby, um, and just some of the major, you know, digging people out of skyscrapers that have taken an artillery shell on the 17th floor, Um, and just the unique challenges that they're going through with urban search and rescue. And I was wondering if that was a topic of discussion at all, or if that's something you've been paying attention to. Uh, so yes, it was just before, uh, or just as hostilities started, it was that first week of, uh, 
hostilities beginning in Ukraine. And so we did uh, pay attention to that and, and obviously talked about that with our our students that were going through the, the course. And, you know, it, it's funny, as I was listening to what we were talking to, talking about just a few minutes ago, you, you know, the the idea of doing uh, a training of a collapsed building, uh, and oh, by the way, there's an inject of, uh, it's a WMD attack, and oh, by the way, there's COVID, and uh, oh, oh yeah, we forgot to tell you that somebody's gonna shoot at you uh, at the same time. You know, I mean, it, it's just, it's one of those things where the students often look at you and kind of go, oh, come on, man, this is so absurd. It's never going to happen. And I'm like, except, yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, they, they, it, it, it really is a bit of an eye-opening experience to appreciate the fact that these scenarios that we are often thrust into are are so layered and so complex, and there are so many different things going on that need to be managed. And, and you know, part of the goal of this course is to prepare those guys to think differently from what they're used to doing and realize that it, there's so much beyond just taking care of the patient. You got to take care of yourself and your own team and and, uh, you know, your logistics and, you know, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, at, at the end of that week, to sit down and talk to those guys and, and have them all say, I had absolutely no idea how challenging this was and how complex and how complicated and how much experience really matters here to be able to manage all the different things that you have to manage and and the idea of all these different crazy quote unquote scenarios that you throw at us but then to realize they're not crazy at all they're actually 100% legit scenarios right i mean i, I think of champlain towers i got a collapse structure i got a hurricane coming and we got covid <laughs> And oh, by the way, the, the air here is full of all kinds of really bad, you know, juju from all the stuff from this collapsed structure, right? So yeah, go now, go manage that, right? You know, I mean, <laughs> figure it, it, it out. It's, 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 uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it sounds absurd when you talk about it from a training scenario, but at the same time, it's like, guys, you got to understand, I was just doing this last week at the Champlain Towers. All of that stuff was happening at the same time. And it it really is this crazy and this challenging and this complicated and this complex. Well, and you don't make up those scenarios, you know, off the top of your head. Like you said, this is probably something no, that you've actually really done. Stop. And, you know, if they want to give me grief about it, I'm like, oh, no, no, no. That was 100% <laughs> real scenario. I, I We dealt with that, right? You know, and it's... It, 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 they just kind of go, yeah, you're making all this up. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. <laughs> it's all real. <laughs> Jamie, you had another question. For well, just as a follow-up question, I mean, you talked about the experience factor being so important. And, and of course, on, on these federal teams, you have that, that layered amount of experience where you 
you, know, you do have the new guys coming in, but you also have the people that have been part of the team for the last 15 years. And, you know, that all kind of melds together to give you this uh, a, a compilation of experience. But I'm wondering, you know, to manage those extremely complex situations, what is the one thing that you find that that people need to fall back on is in, in the way of is it is it the incident command structure? Is it um, the, the training itself? Um, what is it that that you think is the most important thing that people lean on when they hit these complex situations? Uh, that's a, that's a fantastic question, Jamie. I, I don't know, even know that I can answer that. Um, I, I will say that, that I, I, I think the, one of the most important and impactful things that we, the federal USAR system do is we, we supply to local resources who are in chaos because their infrastructure is completely destroyed, right? So the fire chief can't talk to his people. All his fire stations are underwater. Uh, you know, you, you name it, a million different issues. And, and what we're able to supply through the use of incident command, as well as the the resources that we can bring in, for example, our our own you know communication system and our own medical system and our own canines and you know all that kind of stuff. That the the ability to have some kind of structure there that allows a local responder to sort of connect to it and uh for example you know a, a firefighter who can't talk to his command because he's the radios don't work and the fire stations underwater and all those other kind of things we talked about can can connect with a, a federal usar team and say hey look I, I know all these streets. I know all the street signs are gone and there's no landmarks to tell you where you are, but I know all these streets. And so that guy can go from being victimized and struggling to make a positive impact to finding a structure that he can utilize that allows him to take his knowledge and his talents and put them back to work for the good of the community. And, and, and so I, I think in answer to your question, it's, it's many, many different things, but I have come to appreciate the incredible impact of structure and infrastructure to allow local responders to move from being victimized by whatever the incident was to returning them them to to providing help and care for their community and, and i think that's really one of the things that's made makes a profound impact in these situations yeah, that's awesome joe becky did you have any thoughts or questions for joe 
just sort of soaking this all in. Um, I'm actually putting together a presentation for a webinar I'm giving tomorrow. And a lot of it focuses on some of the things that I experienced and how that's impacted how I view disaster response and particularly the need for empathy. And what Joe was saying about like connecting to the local people, I think is really, really spot on. Um, that was always one of the things that was the most powerful to me was talking to people, um, especially afterwards and hearing, you know, their, how they perceive things and what they did to prepare and respond in the moment, but even beforehand and what their perception was of like a tornado forecast. Um, it's a different side of things than like the emergency responders and managers who are local. Uh, but I think it's, it's just fascinating to get a sense for how people just, yeah, I guess perceive and respond to, to disasters. That was sort of what was coming to my mind as Joe was talking, maybe not quite related, but similar. Well, that's a win-win, you know, these people are feeling useful and, and the team gets the use of information they wouldn't otherwise have. But Joe, this reminds me of something else too, you know, back when I was first in the field, ER docs and paramedics didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. But then sometime down the road, we started doing SWAT training and I was doing the EMS part of that. Well, one of the doctors who worked with us um, mandated his, you know, ER students to take part in this. So they would come in and we put them in teams and they'd roll their eyes a whole lot like, you know, why am I having to do this? But I'll tell you what, when they came back around after running a few scenarios, uh, their eyeballs were wide open. And some of them openly admitted, you know, I've never put myself in the position of somebody in the field. And even though this was kind of a little outside of that, but oh my God, you know, I didn't have a clue what to do. And so I think it really helps that relationship and, and builds more mutual respect between ER docs and medics, as your training probably did. Uh, 100% agree with that, Sam. You know, every, every doctor that was involved in this course last week, um, you know, sort of came in with this mindset, I guess, of, you know, I'm the doc, I'm supposed to be in charge. And, you know, they're, they're used to doing that in the emergency department. And I think for many of them, they, they had a very eye opening experience as to the capabilities of, uh, medics, particularly USAR medics who are, you know, the type a cream of the crop kind of guys and an appreciation, uh, grew over, how talented those guys are, how hard that work is, how different it is out there in the field. And all of them came out with a real sense of this is absolutely a team effort. You know, I have some stuff to contribute here, but it's it's not just me by any means. It's very much the talents of the entire team to make this thing work. Yes, like, hi, Doc, have you ever started an IV in an upside-down SUV? <laughs> Try it sometime. It's, And they never see that part of what paramedics do, just throwing that out there. No, they absolutely <laughs> not. And, and, so I, you know, I, I, I mean, obviously, I love doing that kind of training, but I, I think just the – there's such great value in taking – 
um, emergency physicians. And I mean, I've done this with, you know, trauma residents and I've taken them out to our training center and I've let them, you know, cut a car apart and do the jaws of life and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I go, this is what we do every day. So when we show up with a patient whose C collar is not exactly right and only had one IV started, quit your bitching and realize <laughs> this is stuff we've been having to deal with and, and we're doing the best we can under the circumstances. And man, it it is just a complete change of attitude and a, a much greater mutual respect. And I think ultimately a better team uh, and, and the patient ultimately gets, you know, better care because there's an appreciation for what each of the members of the team are contributing. Oh my God. You couldn't have said that better. That that's it right there in a nutshell. Well, Jamie, I don't know about you, but I always love hear about Joe's trainings and I know everything we've done and all his life experience goes into those trainings and it just sounds like it's a win-win for everybody. And, and the thing that I find most interesting when, when hearing from you, Joe, and, and whether it's the training you're doing or the, the scenarios and situations you find yourself in when you're on deployment um, is how everyone is different and every situation has some new challenge that you didn't foresee. Um, and that's always something that I, I find fascinating at, at the resilience of the teams that go into these situations and have yet again another new scenario pop in that nobody foresaw. And, and, and I think you're right, Jamie. I think that's what I love about it the most is that, yes, there are common elements between all of these many deployments that I've been on over the years. But there's always something new and there's always some new challenge and you always got to think on your feet. And we literally, you know, we often think we're sort of making this up as we go along because in many cases we are because every time we do it, it's different from the last time we did it. And and there's some new mission to it. So uh, I, I think I, I think it really becomes about training for resiliency and the ability to think on your feet and understand the big picture and think on a, a big scale and appreciate the complexity not to be overwhelmed by it, but that even the little things you do have a big impact down the road, right? There's a lot of downstream positivity that comes out of what you think may be fairly minor actions early on. And that, folks, is why we have Joe here on the show. It's why we are so thankful for Paragon Medical Education Group to sponsor the show. Um, If you want to get some of that real experience training and help develop that type of resilience in your system, in your own professional care, um, I urge you to reach out to Paragon and, and find out how you can get them to come in. They customize things to your needs, to your budget, um, and, and I think you're not going to be sorry when you see what they can bring to the table for you. And, Joe, how can folks reach out to you to do that? Well, thanks, Jamie. We, we do indeed love to talk to folks. We've got several uh, things we're beginning to pick back up a lot thanks to COVID sort of moving into the background. We'll be in Arkansas 
next month, I think, and uh, multiple military-based things that are popping up very frequently now. So uh, anyway, we, we uh, love to share our experience with people. We look forward to uh, talking to folks. They can reach us at paragonmedicalgroup.com. They can find us on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group. And, and they can always reach out to us through the uh, the Disaster Podcast and the Disaster Podcast Facebook page. Thanks, Joe. Uh, Becky, where can folks find you and track out what you're up to? Yep, they can follow me over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex and the Disaster Podcast Facebook group. Awesome. And Sam? In all the above places, although you hear me mostly talking about what's going on with this humanitarian effort, but I think we're putting some good info out there. But that would be under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11 in most of those places. What about you, Jamie? Folks can find me under the handle Podmedic in just about every social media location out there. Um, even I'm even on um, TikTok if you want to see some random things that pop into my brain. Um, but uh, other than that, um, definitely catch us at on disasterpodcast.com um, where you can subscribe to the show. There are links below every audio player on every episode page. Um, and whether it's iOS or Android or whatever your um, method of choice to subscribe, definitely do that so you don't miss any future episodes. Um, good, good call tonight, Sam, for this episode. And um, we're, again, always looking forward to more updates from what's going on with your humanitarian relief efforts um, associated with what's going on in Ukraine. And we'll probably want to maybe get some updates on that every week now. Yeah, they're, they're pretty crazy busy right now. But as soon as things settle down, although that may be a while, we'll try to get some, some input from them. But, you know... This whole episode has kind of had the theme of nothing stays the same. You know, Joe's deployments, even though they've done a similar thing, there's always another monkey wrench in there. So I guess, you know, the basic thought of be prepared, Semper Gumby. And, you know, be aware of everything that's going on around you and be prepared. 